Hello and welcome to So What You're Saying Is, I'm Peter Whittle. Now my guest today is one of the new rising stars of commentary on the mainstream media. Inaya Falarin Iman is a columnist for Spiked Online. She's also a director of the Free Speech Union and founder of the Equinaya Project. And she's with me now. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. Thank um, you for having me. You have been doing, well, the ghastly mainstream media, as we have to call them, you know, uh, being uh, one of the new media. Um, but basically, you've been talking particularly recently, haven't you, about obviously Black Lives Matter, but also it's wider issues, isn't it, about free speech. Those are the things that really seem to concern you. Right. Yeah, um, yeah, I guess I've, I've been catapulted into more mainstream consciousness from the kind of Black Lives Matter conversation, but I've been very interested, particularly over the last two years, in issues of freedom of speech, Brexit and democracy, yeah. and, and identity politics, and, and all of the kind of big picture questions that I think are shaping public discourse at the moment. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you know, so how did you start this? I mean, how, because you've actually started a foundation yourself, haven't you, called the Equiano Foundation? Yes, no, it's called the, um, the Equiano Project. Um, yes, it's a new organisation launched very recently. And it's to some extent um, in response to Black Lives Matter, but it's something that I've been thinking about for about a year now. I think that when we talk about issues of race and racism, um, it's, very, it's very heated, it's very difficult, and there's uh, increasing inability to have a kind of nuanced and complex conversation about these issues without yeah. it being uh, you know, just massive generalizations yeah. and with a lot of heat but not a lot of light and so the Equiano project is an attempt to respond to that that dif difficulty and kind of bringing people together that are really challenging honest thinkers on these subjects and having really nuanced and interesting conversations about this but also championing the more universalist response to race and racism yeah. we hear a lot about identity politics kind of race consciousness and essentially arguing that race is the kind of primary organizing principle of society i, I reject that conception mm. of society and essentially champion a universalist one a universalist one so based on what the enlightenment yes exactly i think that this this idea that you know all men are created equal even the martin luther king tradition of the content of your character not the color of your skin and i think that that's what we should be aspiring um, to actually manifest in society and i think we were going that way and actually now we're seeing a kind of re-racialization of society where race is now you know the defining way that you should view the world whether that's through white privilege or, or black yeah. victimhood and it's homogenizing people based off of race. I think that's a massive step backwards and I don't think that's how we create a, a harmonious society. But do you find that, I mean to me, what you think seems entirely logical and commonsensical, but do you find there is in the media, you know, that your views are considered to be rather eccentric? I mean, you know, in the media I'm talking about now. Yes, no, I think so. I think, I, I mean, we know a lot about the kind of sensationalism in the media and I think it's very, very uh, uh, convenient to have a kind of narrative that's very simplistic, very black and white and often reactionary and conflicting and I think the identity politics one suits that particular narrative um, very easily and I think the one that I'm essentially advocating for, I would agree with you, it's actually quite commonsensical. Mm -hmm. I think it rings true with most people's instinct that no, we shouldn't be uh, judging people by their immediate physical appearance. We should actually be treating everybody um, as equals and treating them equally. And I think that um, unfortunately that's kind of been challenged um, in recent years with the rise of this kind of new type of thinking. I mean, it's, it's come to the fore in a 
huge way in it recently, but it's been bubbling along there for a long mm. time. I mean, in your own life, you know, when was the first time you really sort of came across what we call maybe woke politics mm. or, or these kind of attitudes, much more sort of, as you say, racializing of everything. When was the first time you really um, came I would, across? Yeah, I would say probably in university, but I think I definitely saw seeds with it um, when I was younger. Um, so uh, one thing about me, I, I've been to various different types of schools. So when I, for my first secondary school, my first couple of years, I went to a private school. And then I went to a local comprehensive school, which was really ethnically diverse. And um, when I was at that comprehensive school, uh, it will, I, I saw a kind of emergence of a kind of racial politics. I mean, there was a kind of, uh, uh, the, the black kids kind of hung out together and there was a lot about kind of, uh, you know, being black and what yeah. that meant. And, and so a lot of those things were kind of emerging during that time, uh, but it wasn't too uh, defining or limiting in the way that I think it really catapulted when I went to university and seeing the emergence of kind of decolonized curriculum and critical race theory Theory, which essentially uh, uh, argue that race is the most important characteristic, that society is kind of fundamentally and institutionally racist, and the various things that we must do in order to kind of uh, uh, reorder society um, against what they kind of conceive yeah. of as kind of racist roots. And so that's, university was definitely where I saw um, the most palpable uh, conception of this woke politics that, that we're seeing now transform our institutions. Did you see or have you heard about, say, President Trump's speech last night about critical race theory? Uh, he yes. made a similar one, didn't he, at Mount mm. Rushmore? But last, I think yesterday's, it was basically about the ways to stop it. He's just defunded, hasn't he? Mm. Federal sp spending on this. I mean, do you think that's a good thing? I mean, did, did you think it was a good speech? Yeah, no, I thought it was a, a, a brilliant speech, I think, and particularly where a lot of this uh, uh, wokeness, so to speak, is, is coming out of America. Yeah. You know, um, I'm a big fan of America, but this is an example of American cultural hegemony dominating. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so there, there's pros and cons with that. And so they're obviously feeling it in a really strong way. And I understand why he did it. I, I mean, we, you know, I think a lot of it is response to the kind of 1619 project, yeah. which is trying to essentially rewrite American history mm -hmm. to argue that its roots were uh, racist to the core. And I think, um, that that's a really dangerous thing. I think that will change um, how Americans perceive their history and, and in turn perceive themselves. So I think it's incredibly serious and I understand why Donald Trump did it. I think it's unfortunate that we're at the point where um, we are not necessarily able to uh, uh, utilize more democratic mechanisms of making the case against critical mm. race theory that we mm. essentially have to ban it. Um, but I understand why it, it, it is being done because I think critical race theory which argues that racism is embedded and endemic in our society is incredibly divisive. Mm. Um, and I think, I, I think it's a racist ideology. Well, it is in the end, isn't it? Mm. I mean, it, it sort of, it, it goes through old fashioned liberalism and mm. comes out the other end in a very extreme form. But I mean, I know you say about banning it. I think that from what I can gather, he's banned funding mm. for these various things like, uh, bias, uh, you know, uh, bias training or mm. things like this, unconscious bias. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of people are looking from here and thinking, why can't we do something mm. like that? I mean, why? Because I think the point you make is a very important one, which is that it's a pity we've got to do it that way. 
So what do you do in that? Win hearts and minds? Is that mm. what you do? What do you do? Well, this is the thing. I think, um, unfortunately, in Britain, and I hope this will change, I think we are facing a massive, you know, collapse of political authority. Mm. I think we should not necessarily have to take those kind of drastic measures, but we're in a situation where, I mean, in the, in the kind of Black Lives Matter protests in the height of it, church was boarded up and we couldn't even have really um, a, a political authority that was willing to even defend basic kind of history the things that actually give us a lot of pride and a sense of you know national identity and and, and common belonging and so I, in an ideal situation I would you know we would hope that for example people in positions of authority that create culture yeah. uh, or, or even kind of define politics would actually have the confidence to be able to say no that's not the society um, that we live in these basic uh, fundamental democratic values or, or liberal values are not um, racist actually these are the things that many people are trying to cross the channel to actually um, get to I think we should be very grateful for them and, and cherish them and say that in a very powerful way but uh, a lot of political elites don't have the confidence and so sometimes that means drastic measures have to be taken. When you say a lot of political elites don't have confidence, I mean, there are various particular elites that don't have the confidence, aren't there? I mean, we're talking about the West, if you like, aren't we on the whole? And I mean, basically, it's not just they don't have the confidence, I'd say there's been a positive, well, collapsing confidence, but also it's this change in the, the, the uh, various challenges coming to the culture seem to be coming from within the institutions. You know, so we've seen like the British Library, mm. the British Museum, very quickly. I mean, were you surprised at the speed with which these things happened during the Black Lives Matter thing? It just seemed to happen like that, didn't it? Yeah, I think it, it was it was an unbelievable speed, and I think it does show the the erosion that has happened over a very long period of time. That the the kind of fail safe, so to speak, that we would have that would uh, put uh, uh, brakes on any kind of rapid transformation uh, have been eroded over such a long time. So whether that is that is the the kind of media which we'd hope would be able to um, any kind of uh, political movement that emerges, they should be able to hold them to account, ask them difficult questions. That didn't happen. They were all mm. championing them. Mm. Or, so many of the institutions that we otherwise would have relied on to um, yeah, put the brakes essentially on any kind of rapid change capitulated very, very quickly. And I think yeah, part of that has been a, uh, yeah, a lack of faith in the ideals that um, we talk about, the, the enlightenment and liberal values to bring about uh, a kind of better society or even the fact that they're not actually articulated in a meaningful way from, from very early on anymore. Mm. And so a, a movement that makes bold and, and radical claims about our society in such a kind of powerful way um, can, can just change things mm. so quickly. Mm. And I think, um, yeah, I think it's a stark reminder of where we are at. I saw you wrote something recently saying that something I think is just undeniable, which is that the right lost the culture war a long time ago. I mean, you know, there's no point in actually sort of talking about it being a battle, that it was, it mm. was lost, mm. but that the only way it can be turned around is if, I think you said if the conservatives, or conservatives, shall we say, mm. start conserving again. Mm. Yes, um, I, I really believe that. I think, um, I mean, if we just take the Tory party, um, many of the uh, uh, things that uh, we 
would regard as even just me the example that I just gave earlier about Winston Churchill I mean Boris frequently framed himself as the kind of champion of Winston Churchill this is just a trivial example but um, that, that they they haven't been able to, to stand up and I think that that shows that you know conservatism for a long time the kind of ideological philosophical basis that defines it has not really been um, powerful enough uh, for, for a very long time now and so I think um, until um, they do that until we start to actually or, or conservatives more broadly start to actually stand up and defend these things and not be afraid to actually um, do this in the face of being called racist or all mm. of these different things then I think things will continue because at least the left um, or, or the woke left in particular there isn't a line I don't think there's a point where they'll say I'm gonna stop. I mean, a lot mm. of people, when when the kind of statues were originally being um, toppled, people thought, oh well, you know, they're just kind of slave owners. We don't mind having them toppled, but it, it didn't stop. I mean, now we're seeing the University of Edinburgh uh, get it changing the name of you know, the David Hume Tower, mm. and so that there's no end. And I think um, the, the, the I think the conservatives will have to be the ones really that that draw a line on this. But they're just not, are they? Mm. They're just not. I mean, you know, why do you think they're so reluctant? I mean, we've talked about this on this show quite a bit before. You've had, okay, you've got Trump, right? But then you've also got President Macron, for example, saying, mm. look, this is French history, better or worse, uh, you know, and it's not going to change. Why is it that, you know, everyone's been so lacklustre mm. politically? I mean, in the government, do you think? I think I think there's a complex range of reasons for that. I think some of them are historical reasons. I think, um, for example, when we saw in in the 20th century, you know, with with the kind of uh, with the rise of authoritarianism and 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 kind of Nazism, I think a lot of people um, associated kind of more strong forthright right wing politics with something that was kind of destructive and negative. And I think um, as well as the kind of collapse of the left um, when with the fight, kind of fall of, um, of communism, I think the left lost its kind of belief that there was an alternative as well. And so I think, yeah, I think philosophically for, for both the left and the right that they are struggling to find what they um, really mean. And I think even from a kind of conservative perspective, um, even some of the kind of religious underpinnings that used to underpin conservatism aren't even there either. So I think many of the things, whether that's religiously or philosophically, that would drive um, conservative politics, they haven't really um, been able to respond to the changes that things have happened. So I think I think it's going to be uh, a deep, uh, deep kind of introspection and reflection to be able yeah. to find what kind of society uh, going forward do we actually want to create mm. and, and conserve. You've actually said as well that we're living in a very therapeutic society. Mm. What do you mean by that? Well, I think um, we see it with many of the, the politics at the moment, and I think identity politics is a really good example of that. Um, the, the, the way in which people uh, get recognition or get authority in the political sphere is mm. by a grievance-based identity. I think we see it um, in many ways with kind of trans activism. We see it to a to a lesser extent with kind of just the feminist movement. But I think the black activism it is is one of the you know most palpable um, examples of that at the moment. It's not a, a politics which advocates for agency or kind of responsibility and kind of taking control of one's life and mm. and and um, you know yeah directing oneself into where wherever destination we want to go it's a kind of demand for recognition it's a demand for kind of um, external forces to kind of uh, do something uh, for us and I think um, I think that's a very disempowering 
um, form of politics. I think um, I think it's one, uh, where, yeah, which leaves people um, not feeling um, able or capable mm. to be able to take control of their life. But I think it manifests itself um, in, in in a range of different ways. Mm. It's sort of as you say, it's like putting the, the, the victim mm. in, at the at the top. It's mm. the primary thing about someone. Where you stand on the victimhood pantheon. Oh, exactly. In a way. And this yeah. is, a, it's, it's not even necessarily an, an accident. I mean, part of the kind of critical race theory and all of these things is this view of kind of intersectionality, which argues that um, we all have uh, various kind of identities and they, and they intersect. And, and where you um, are on that kind of uh, intersectional hierarchy, uh, essentially. Uh, places you as as more authentic. So, for example, that's why you know if you are a straight white male, you're perhaps morally um, not as uh, uh, superior as someone that is a kind of black trans woman. And so, yeah, it, it's almost it's in a kind of victimhood hierarchy. And I think mm. that's very much uh, how our politics is 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 shaping at the moment. So, as a woman, a black woman, where do you stand on it? I mean, I I've often tried to work out as a, as a as, as a gay man, you know, white man, where do where do I stand? I think that I must still be sort of like pretty much, l you know, low in the sense that I'm, you know, a white man. Mm. Um, but I get this kind of like uh, special pass, I guess, you know, because I'm, cause mm. I'm gay. Um, but the thing is, I was interesting on that point. The most hostile reactions I've had whenever I've spoken anywhere have been from the gay lobby, mm. because I'm kind of like the wrong. I have the wrong views. Now this must happen to you too, surely. Yeah, and I think this is this. Not because you're a gay man, but you know <laughs> what I mean, you know. Yeah, no. Um, I think this is what happens with identity politics. I think. Um, I think there was a really interesting case. I mean, perhaps in the '60s, when there was very specific forms of discrimination based off of people's identity. Um, there was this concept um, by this post colonial theorists called Spivak called strategic essentialism. So for, for essentially strategic purposes, you would homogenize in order to kind of advocate for your collective interests. And mm. I thought that that was effective during the 60s mm. when there were specific forms of discrimination. But we are not living in that society anymore. And actually that new form of essentialism that has emerged is massively holding people back. So yeah. actually, if you are a kind of free thinking, contrarian or, or just in independent minded ethnic minority that doesn't really, uh, the things that are being said doesn't really align, you're seen as less authentic. And so it's a new form of stereotyping that people are actually wanting to be stereotyped. And I think, uh, yeah, I think it is, is very problematic. Mm. I mean, do you get, uh, you know, do you get abuse, you know? I mean, you're online a lot, aren't you? I mean, do you get abuse for your view? I mean, when you've criticized Black Lives Matter, for example? You know, interestingly, you know, I, I'm, I'm still figuring out, I'm still figuring out why, but I don't seem to get as much abuse as um, other kind of commentators that I've seen on this particular issue criticizing Black Lives Matter. Um, I think that um, I, I personally don't generally go after people and mm. I do, I'm very kind of specific with my arguments and I think, I think, um, yeah, I don't try and get too involved in the kind of uh, back and forth kind of conflict, which I think is really unproductive. But I do get um, criticism, of course, and in some senses I welcome it, I want mm -hmm. criticism. But in terms of personal attacks, I think, um, I think for a lot of people, that support Black Lives Matter, they often don't know where to fit me. You know, I, I've, I've got dreadlocks. I'm not necessarily in the Tory bars or anything like that. And I think it, it seems to confuse 
them. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think because uh, this week we had a, um, a good example of, of, a, of one of those sort of fights uh, in the media with Calvin Robinson, who has been on this channel a couple of times, uh, quite recently in fact. And uh, he really was ripped apart, wasn't he, on, mm. on, on Twitter. And they were calling him all sorts of awful names and things. Um, and I thought the pressure in that situation is really intense, actually. Yeah, I think um, the situation with Calvin, of course, what he went through was completely unacceptable. But I think it was a really important moment mm. in terms of just exposing just the vitriolic nastiness. And I think it's really telling because particularly those um, that advocate for Black Lives Matter, they frequently position themselves as coming from a place of moral superiority and doing the right thing. But when the light is often shone on their perhaps contradictions, the, the, the nastiness comes out. I think that's very telling. And I think, um, yeah, the more that they do that, I think the more it reveals that I don't think this is a, a movement based off of kind of principle, based off of trying to genuinely create a better society. It's one that has filled with a lot of vengeful and resentful undertones mm. and I think someone like Calvin who is you know an ethnic minority um, man who has his own thoughts and disagrees with it that's almost mm. the worst thing that can yeah, happen yeah, to them because yeah, that yeah. challenges their whole mm. you know conception that they're speaking mm. on behalf of you know all people that um, are, are black or, or, or what have you and that's just not true. You know you mentioned uh, the Tory party there uh, I mean do you ever think of okay you're you're building quite a career as a commentator at the moment. But do you ever think of being politically active? I mean, I know you, you were in the Brexit party, weren't you? Yes. Did you actually stand? No, I did stand. Um, I, I, I stood for the Brexit party for that specific issue of Brexit. Um, yeah. That was incredibly important to me, just you know, respecting mm. such a powerful democratic expression. And I, I thought the whole situation that happened for four years was essentially immoral. And so, yes. it, was, yeah. so it was important for me to show that um, yeah, there are a very broad range of Brexiteers. And so in terms of specific party politics, um, I would say that uh, at this moment, it's not necessarily something that I would be involved in. Um, but I, because I think there are too many uh, issues underlying the political parties at the moment um, to actually affect the kinds of change that I think needs to happen. But well, give us just a few, what, 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 are, what are the underlying problems? Well, I think well, part of the things that um, I've been saying, I think if we even lack the basic ability to call out um, what you know we saw in those protests, which was it wasn't even you know law and order; it was the, just the basic application of the rule of law, mm -hmm. which we would hope you know in a liberal you know society would be able to do that. And I think that it shows that um, uh, the kind of political will um, needed in order to kind of respond to whether that is the kind of therapeutic and kind of child-centered learning education, not the kind of traditionalist approach which I support, or, or, or those kinds of things, I think it seems unlikely. I mean, I don't have um, complete lack of faith, but I think um, these are some of the demonstrations that, that show that um, I think we're not necessarily at the precipice yet, which would be needed to, I think, hopefully um, get some life back into the political parties. So really it comes down, doesn't it, to what we were saying before, that essentially if they're not going to take on mm. in any serious way these cultural issues, then you're not interested really. Is that right? You would personally not be interested in... Well, I think, um, I, I do think, uh, I, 
I, I mean, there's a there's a quote I think from Andrew Breitbart. I think he said politics is downstream from culture. That's right. Yeah. Um, I we live by that here. Oh, yeah. really? <laughs> 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 I think that I think there's a lot of truth yeah, in that. Yeah. Um, I think uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of truth in that, and I think that if the, the the culture within our society is, I guess, what cultivates a sense of you know agency, responsibility, a sense of kind of a, a vibrant democratic spirit, and if you're not willing to be part of the process that uh, ignites that, then I think you're going to have a very lacklustre politics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think which is what we've got, mm -hmm. actually. Um, well, at this point on Brexit, it's, it's not unlike Claire Fox, you know, she, she, that was the one specific thing. But they saw it very, very clearly in terms of th this was a real attempt, presumably this is how you saw it, mm -hmm. a real attempt to overthrow, you know, for better or worse, a decision that was made. Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, but that really brings me just to one other thing I think is quite interesting. I think you've touched on this before, and that is that absent from all of the discussions and the protests and everything, is there any kind of real talk about class or inequality? Mm. Almost nothing. Mm. This is not this is not one of their preoccupations, is mm. it? The, you know, the identity, would you call them identitarians? You know, the, 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 this is not really one of their concerns, is it? Yeah, I think this is actually one of the most uh, disturbing in some senses aspects of um, this kind of cultural uh, malaise that we're experiencing. I think um, it very much suits um, a kind of politics that isn't really interested in getting to the deep-rooted issues of, of kind of, you know, extreme inequality or the you know, different issues that are affecting society. So it stays on these superficial mm -hmm. things like people's, you know, gender or their race. And I, I think, um, and I would fundamentally disagree with the idea that your race in Britain um, can hold you, hold you back mm -hmm. in life. Mm -hmm. I, think, um, I, I think Britain perhaps um, should actually almost congratulate itself on, on its achievement in terms of going from a society that was, you know, colonial and, um, and uh, all of the things that happened in the, the past to be able to forge a society mm. that um, people from all different backgrounds can achieve great heights. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I think that um, the kind of identity politics um, is a massive deflection from actually perhaps a, cl a class politics. I wouldn't necessarily class think class is the, uh, I wouldn't take a class reductionist perspective, but I would definitely argue that um, class is perhaps a, a more significant determiner mm. of um, your ability to access different spaces than your race, most definitely. Oh yeah, I, but my, my fear is that it's growing. Mm. You know, if you look at it's social mobility, if you look in education, you know, people who get on now have usually been privately educated or far more than maybe when I was growing up. Yes. Far more when I was sort of teenager in the 70s, you know, and uh, it was far more social mobility. I think half and half at yes. uh, Ox Oxbridge, public, private. No, I, I completely agree. And, and this is another thing that's really interesting with the race issue. And this is a, a statistic that many people don't know about. So for 16 to 30 year olds, um, black people that live in Britain, they're actually at income parity with their white counterparts. Now that's very significant upward levels of social mobility mm -hmm. from um, ethnic minority people of the previous generation. So their children are actually doing really, really well. So when it comes to actual social mobility, um, ethnic minority um, Britons are actually doing much better than their white British counterparts. Yeah. So what's really interesting again is that, you know, a lot of the time, even these kinds of, you know, quotas or diversity schemes end up benefiting mm. uh, 
middle class mm. ethnic minority mm. and then the people um, that are facing various structural barriers regardless of race are completely ignored mm. and a, a very similar thing happens in America as well yes uh, there's a fundamental difference though in racial history isn't there in between Britain and America and I mean again one of the interesting things is, is the ease with which it's been adopted here somehow being you know the same history and it's really not Yes, I think um, I, it's very concerning that um, in some senses, particularly many of these Black Lives Matter activists have wanted to have mm. a similar history mm. to America, which mm. is one that is um, full of trials and tribulations and also triumphs, but um, not one that um, can be reasonably compared to Britain. Mm. I think anyone that c tries to import the American racial cultures to, to Britain cannot be taken seriously. There are many fundamental differences. I mean, the overwhelming majority of African-Americans obviously came as a result of transatlantic slave, slavery, and um, they had the, the history of kind of Jim Crow and the civil rights movement. So they have a relatively unified history that's very different to the black mm. British story, which is one of uh, heterogeneity, you know, whether that's the kind of Windrush generation to more recent people from kind of West Africa and to even kind of um, uh, British, black British people from hundreds of years ago. So it's very disparate in terms of the, the story. It's not one that is um, unified. But also, for example, in America, you know, there was laws against interracial relationships. Mm. In, in Britain, actually, a black Caribbean man is more likely to have a kid with a white woman mm. than a black woman. So we're talking about um, one that's uh, a much more kind of integrated um, history. Actually, working class people, particularly in the 70s and 80s were at the forefront of anti-racist activism mm. and black and white people stood together um, in a much more unified way. In, in Britain, uh, in America, kind of poor whites and poor blacks don't necessarily have a, um, a unified politics. Yeah. Mm, so there's yeah. so many differences. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, the whole controversy over uh, Adele's kind of uh, outfit, as, as kind of trivial as it was, it really highlighted that, you know, we have things like the Notting Hill Carnival, which brings together people of all mm. ethnicities, and American people didn't understand that. You know, they thought it was cultural appropriation, when actually it was completely normal here in Britain. So I think that we, we import the American narrative at, at our peril. Yeah, but I mean, that, isn't that something that we vaguely imported as well, the whole cultural appropriation argument? It's sort of, not quite, it's lapping around the edges, isn't mm. it? Yes, yeah. it's it's not um, taking off as powerful as powerfully in um, Britain, but yeah. it's definitely um, something that we have been hearing more and more of. And it goes back to what I was saying in the beginning in terms of what the Equiano Project tries to promote, which is a universalism and one that focuses on the future and what mm. kind of society we're we trying to create. Because are we really saying that um, we should all stay in our fixed, mm. you know, essential racial or cultural silos. How can we create a, a kind of an integrated society, a, a kind of with bonds of solidarity and community if, if everything is defined so rigidly? And we have our own version of that in Britain with kind of multiculturalism as a public policy, which basically categorizes people based on cultures and, and seeks to kind of manage them in that way. So we have our own kind of version, but I think um, it, it's, it's not working. It, the thing is with this, with multiculturalism here, is that, it, you know, the, as an idea, it was being challenged, oh, 10, 15 years ago. Mm. I mean, Angela Merkel made a speech about it, we have to accept it's not worked. Cameron did, David Cameron did. But 
it's still very much the default position mm. and I, I and certainly for example in local councils it seems like it hasn't trickled down the idea that somehow we should have we should say we are a multi-ethnic society with an overarching mm. you know unifying uh, set of values and but, but it's very much now still I think in the lifeblood in the cultural lifeblood that we're multicultural mm. I mean, it's a fundamental difference I think think America is is actually that's they've taken a leaf out of our book there mm. haven't they because it was always a melting pot in America but not anymore no exactly I mean there was a thing I think it was in the New York Times where they were going to start capitalizing yes. B for black and, and W yeah. for white yes. and saying that they're specific distinct separate cultures and yeah I think that's I think that's a horrifying step I yeah. think that's a backwards step what we should be doing is even you know I, I get the multi-ethnic but sometimes I just think we shouldn't we shouldn't even have to think about things in that way we are British citizens mm -hmm. and and we are all you know stand on an equal footing and should be conceiving of ourselves as as one nation and and we don't have that again back to what we were talking earlier about the confidence to just reject all of this type of politics and say that it is just not working and and I think it's I think multiculturalism does a lot of damage to social cohesion but also to the cultures that people are seeking to protect because if you are a for example, uh, uh, this is obviously a generalisation, but if you, if you are perhaps a, a gay Muslim, you know, man, mm. you you won't be seen as as authentic as perhaps a kind of uh, so-called traditional Muslim leader, and yeah. and that keeps people actually in a very um, static position. Mm. That's not a progressive society, mm. in my opinion. You're in your twenties, aren't you? Yes. Right, okay. Uh, we're hearing a lot, and I think with a lot of justification of the extraordinary level of indoctrination in education. And mm. uh, we've certainly talked about it on these programs. Uh, some people, though, seem to slip through the net. And I wonder how you s sort of slip through the net. How does it work? I mean, if you're going from school mm. to university, and trust me, look, honestly, when I've spoken, like at universities and things, entirely the same views about virtually everything. Mm. So, I mean, you, how did you? How have you managed, as it were, to come out the other end mm. and with your own thoughts and your own your own judgment intact? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, yeah, I, I would agree with you. Uh, that was something quite astonishing. I, I when I speak at universities, I mean, as well. have you always had views? I mean, I'm sorry, but mm. have you been political? How long have you been political, really? Um, I think I became perhaps politically conscious at about 14 years old. I right. think I'm very lucky. So my mum, you know, she is a very uh, conservative minded. Mm. And um, from very young, she kind of engaged my sister and I in, in pol political thinking and ideas and, and kind of encouraged us to kind of question everything. And so going into environments of kind of ideological conformity, I think I already had a kind of suspicion of anything that um, was too powerfully trying to say what to think mm. versus how. And so I think instinctively, um, I think I'd, by the time I'd already got to university, I'd cultivated um, a kind of sense of suspicion towards those mm. things. And um, and yeah, so I, I, I distanced myself from that kind of, uh, the, that kind of ideological conformity quite early on. But I think it is hard, you know, I, at university, I think it, it is, um, the tide is very one way. I remember being very surprised that, that um, despite the fact that the country overwhelmingly voted you know one way 
in regards to the Brexit referendum. I, I didn't hear, I wasn't exposed to any pro-Brexit um, mm -hmm. opinion. Mm -hmm. And and so how can how can we cultivate you know independent-minded you know responsible citizens when the brain of our society is is just so conformist? I think it's um I think there's a lot to do when it comes to the education and, and um, university sector. Well, uh, it's sort of closing closing in on itself, isn't mm. it? I mean, some people like Roger Scruton have said the only thing we can possibly do is actually, t certainly with the humanities, just it, they're gone. Mm. Forget about them. Start new things up, you know, I think it's a chance, you know. Yeah. And I think more and more people are thinking um, Well, look, it's been lovely to talk to you. And uh, what's on the cards for you now? What, what are you going to be doing next? So I think the Equiano project for me is really uh, the where my focus is in, at least yeah. for the for the medium term. I think with the unconscious bias, diversity training, all of these things coming down the pipe um, to many organisations. I think that I'm trying to create an alternative, one that kind of champions the things that we've been discussing about. You know, our, our common humanity, yeah. emphasising what what unites us, not what divides us. And I think that people need to be aware that there is an alternative to this thinking, one that is actually promoting harmony, not um, constant division. Well, how can be how can people become involved? Is it something where they can become involved? Yes. Can um, they become members? Yes, you can go onto theequianoproject.com and I think, um, yeah, there's information in terms of how to get involved in terms of even events. So we're starting kind of community events where um, you know, people can be part of participating and shaping this conversation, not just our expert-led events. So there's many different things um, that people can actually get involved in to be part of um, this conversation and changing this uh, this uh, extreme division um, yeah. that we are, we're seeing in regards to race. Well, look, thank you very, very much. We, what we'll do, we'll put on the uh, programme when it goes out a link to the project. Yeah. And also, obviously, I mentioned the Free Speech Union with Toby uh, Young. You're doing quite a bit of work with them, aren't you? Yes. You're, you're on the board. Yes, I'm, right? I'm on the board. Okay. And, um, yeah, no, I think it's a brilliant organisation, I think. As I said earlier, in terms of you know, as we get more to the precipice, it in some sense necessitates a response. And now we're seeing much more organisations starting saying no, you know, we're not going to just allow this to drive through such an amazing you know country and society that we live in and the free speech. Can I ask that. you one final question? Sure. Because no, no, because it's a, it's one. Is that uh, you say when we go towards the precipice? I don't mean you to be too literal minded if you don't. But what would that look like? Do you think? Well, I, th I think that, you know, when the Black Lives Matter protests um, came about, I, I mean, first and foremost, I hope that in nowhere, anywhere now, I don't think we're going to get to the point of America, which is these riots mm. and things going on, really horrific violence mm. and dangerous stuff. I think that that's completely too far. But I think at least with the Black Lives Matter protests, I think we, I think we saw a kind of window in terms of where things could go, where everything is defined by race in, in every single element and layer of our society, that kids are being taught you know, about white privilege and these types of things. I think that that is a, a road that we don't want to go down, that we shouldn't go down. And I hope that when we, people will um, observe the things that have happened over the last few months and realise that um, each of us individually as well as collectively now needs to kind of say no, whether that's in our workplaces um, or in our schools, in our organisations, we don't have to um, essentially capitulate to this thinking. It would take a bit of guts in, won't it, for people? No, I think, I think it does take guts, but I think nothing 
nothing worthwhile is easy, especially something as precious as the society that we have today. And I think hopefully that will inspire people to perhaps become much more active participants in shaping and defending what we value. Perfect. On that note, thank you very, very much. Thanks. Um, thank you for that. Uh, next week, we'll be back. In the meantime, um, I'd like, as I always do at these programmes, to remind you of our campaign, Save Our Statues, uh, .org.uk. Please do subscribe to that, as well as subscribing to this. Um, uh, it's obviously going great guns. So thank you very much, and uh, see you next week.